You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Let's listen to the Word of God from Acts 10, 1 through 23. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a century, excuse me, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in to say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And then he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while we were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit spoke to him. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. pray together. Father, we want to glorify your name this morning through all that we do. We're so grateful for David and for Joey to see them surrounded by their family and their loved ones as they were here to witness such a profound moment in their lives. Where they publicly declared 
that Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray that we would, <clears throat> we would never get over the thrill and the joy of witnessing the baptism of a brother or a sister. Pray now as we look into your word that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. As we were reminded in the Hebrews reading, the word of God is living and powerful and we want to experience the word's work through the power of the Spirit this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 10 is where we have arrived this morning. I don't know if some of you can identify with this experience, but, but sometimes when I'm watching a cheesy family movie with my kids, and sometimes I wonder if there's any other kind, and the plot line is really predictable, I will guess at some of the lines certain characters are preparing to say. Now, the result of this little activity is that it annoys my older children. But when I guess correctly, it causes my younger children to marvel at my magical mind-reading powers. But the reality is some stories are just so predictable that we all know exactly what's coming next. Of course, not all stories are this way. We've all encountered riveting tales that keep us guessing right up until the final page. And it's only after we finish the book that we understand how all the pieces fit together. Our text this morning tells us a story that can be a little confusing the first time through. How all the pieces fit together is not immediately obvious. So my plan this morning is to give you a brief overview of Acts chapter 10, explaining how all the parts of the story fit together. I'll draw out a, a couple of application points for us. And then next week, as we gather for Easter Sunday, I'll dig into the heart of the text, which is Peter's sermon in verses 34 through 43. It's a sermon on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 begins with an introduction. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. <clears throat> this man named Cornelius is a Gentile. A Roman military officer with command over a group of a hundred men called the Italian cohort, and he's stationed in Caesarea, a center of Roman administration. In fact, this is where the Roman governors lived. The population of Caesarea was mainly Gentile, and already in Acts, Philip has traveled to Caesarea back in chapter 8, verse 40, and Paul has stopped here on his way to Tarsus. Chapter 9, verse 30. The text says that Cornelius was a God-fearer and devout man who led his family to worship Israel's God. And he was very generous. 
All of this means that Cornelius worshipped Jehovah, though he had not fully converted to Judaism through circumcision. In fact, one commentator points out that this description probably refers to a specific group of Gentiles who were not Jews and not full proselytes, but they were attached to the synagogues and were sympathetic to Jewish theology and ethics. This group of people was, as one historian points out, ripe for conversion to Christianity. But of course, friends, if if someone is to be converted to Christ, God must act in sovereign power. Whether it's a persecutor of true believers like Saul or a sympathetic seeker like Cornelius, God must intervene and orchestrate events so that the gospel of Christ is declared and then received by faith. That's precisely what happens in our text. We'll pick up the story in verse 3 about the ninth hour of the day. He, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The parallels between the stories we encounter throughout Acts are fascinating. Verses 3 and 4 mirror what happened to Saul on the Damascus road. For Saul, a light appeared from heaven. He heard a voice and he responded, Who are you, Lord? Here, Cornelius has a vision and hears a voice and he responds, What is it, Lord? Saul is told to go to a disciple named Ananias, while Cornelius is told to find a disciple named Peter. But there's also a key similarity between this story and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's clear in the text that the Ethiopian eunuch was being drawn to saving faith, but he needed someone to explain the gospel to him. Cornelius is in the same boat. He is clearly being drawn to Christ, but he needs to hear the gospel explained. And how's that going to happen? In both cases, what happens? God sovereignly provides a messenger. This is a wonderful snapshot, brothers and sisters, of God's heart for sinners. It reminds us that he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It it reminds us that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. At this very moment, there are seven and a half billion people who have never heard the gospel. Friends, how will they hear? Who will explain the depth of God's love for them in Christ? Who will be the one who will explain what Isaiah 53 is all about? Who will tell them about 
Jesus. How might God be sovereignly moving in this very moment by his spirit to stir the heart of someone in this room to go and declare the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus? This is how it works. God sends his people out and his people share the gospel. And those who have never heard the name of Jesus, but the spirit is working in them and drawing them when they hear that name, they turn in repentance and faith to Christ. Look with me at verse 9. Cornelius is told to send two messengers to fetch Peter and bring him back to Caesarea. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. While the messengers are traveling, Peter is having his own vision, and his is way stranger than Cornelius's. Something like a giant bedsheet is falling from heaven, and on that giant sheet there are a slew of animals that Peter is commanded to kill and eat. The only problem with this is that many of the animals who have parachuted down to him were considered unclean and forbidden, according to Exodus 11. Faithful to these Jewish food regulations, Peter's response to the mysterious vision and voice is to say, no, No, I I can't do that. In fact, in typical Peter fashion, he refuses to obey this command three times. But look again at verse 15. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Friends, what are we to make of this pronouncement? Peter was acting in accordance with what he believed the scriptures taught. So so what does this mean? Has something changed? Well, listen to what theologian David Peterson says in his commentary. It's an excellent explanation. He writes, the clean and unclean provisions of the law were temporary. Designed to keep Israel a holy and distinct people until the time when Jews and Gentiles could receive forgiveness of sins and sanctification on the same basis through faith in Christ. Well, this glorious time has arrived. But Peter doesn't fully understand all the implications of exactly what's taken place. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, 
stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. While Peter is still confused and trying to figure out exactly what God is telling him to do, Cornelius' messengers arrive and the Spirit tells Peter to go to the three men without hesitation. Now this is an interesting phrase that's loaded with significance. Okay, think about it. Peter has just been directed by God to kill and eat impure animals that only profane Gentiles would have eaten. Now the Spirit directs Peter to go without hesitation, or we could say without distinction, to meet with three Gentile men. Notice that Peter doesn't know why the men are calling for him. All he knows is the Holy Spirit said go. And so he does. Brothers and sisters, as it relates to the mission of God and the making of disciples, there is no lengthy process you need to go through to determine the will of God. The posture of your heart should be to immediately obey, even when the details don't make perfect sense, even when your heart might be filled with fear, when the Spirit says, go, obey. Peter didn't know where he was going. He only only knew who he was following. Verse 21. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, and upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. Cornelius' messengers give Peter a real quick synopsis of what has happened and why they are now asking him to travel with them back to Cornelius' home. And the heart of their request is this. A holy angel told Cornelius that he needs to hear what you have to say. And what was this message that Peter was known for declaring? What message did people connect to Peter? It was the message of Jesus. Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. It was the message that Peter had been proclaiming in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. So this is nothing less than a divine invitation to preach the gospel. I wonder if if someone approached a person who knows you said, so-and-so has questions about Jesus, would they immediately think, well, if you have questions about Jesus, then let's send for Josh. Let's send for Darren. Let's send for Whitney, because 
I immediately think, if, if you want to hear about Jesus, that person will tell you about Jesus. Look at verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter responds to Cornelius' request and obeys the spirit. He travels to Caesarea and meets Cornelius, who immediately falls down and begins to worship Peter. Now this response might seem strange and inappropriate to you. It did to Peter. But put yourself in the place of Cornelius. Out of nowhere, an angel of God appears to you and tells you to send some guys to Joppa to find someone named Peter because this guy named Peter will come to you and give you a message from God. Now, if that plan actually worked and the guy the angel told you to go get did show up at your house, then perhaps you would be tempted to think he was someone pretty special. Peter corrects Cornelius' misconception of who he is and then he is led into a room where many people are gathered. Verse 28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked, why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So this is a preacher's dream scenario, right? Someone sends for you, and when you arrive, they have gathered a large group together, and their only expectation is that you tell them everything the Lord has commanded. Notice that this is the second time Peter has heard the story of Cornelius' vision, and it's the third time we've read about it in the span of just 33 verses. Why is that? Why the repetition of this event? I think the text is emphasizing God's sovereign power in the entire event. It is impossible for us to miss the role of divine intervention and direction in the events of Cornelius' conversion and Peter's gospel work among the Gentiles. There is only one explanation for what is happening here. This is the plan of God carried out by the power of God. And that needs to be crystal clear. 
Again, Peter is welcomed into the home of a Gentile who has gathered a large group of friends and family members to hear what Peter has to say. Only God could orchestrate something like this. This is not the result of man's ingenuity or creativity. God has done this. In verse 34, Peter begins to speak. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, we'll study Peter's sermon in detail next week. I want you to notice how he begins. It's with a personal statement in response to what he believes God has revealed to him through his earlier vision. But this is the point. In fact, his first statement connects what he stated back in verse 28 or 23 with the gospel message he is about to declare. This is the extraordinarily important truth God has revealed to Peter. John Stott writes, God's attitude toward people is not determined by any external criteria, such as their appearance, their race, their nationality, or their class. In fact, to be absolutely clear, look at verse 43. Peter declares, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Redeemer, this, this is at the very center of everything we do as a church. It's this reality that needs to motivate everything we do Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Right? We want everyone to know this eternal hope that is only found in Christ. And we believe that this message of eternal hope and loving forgiveness in Christ is for all people. There is no one off limits. Now I want you to skip down to verse 44. As Peter preached the gospel, while he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. One pastor called this the Gentile Pentecost. 
This is almost the mirror image of what happened to Jerusalem in Acts 2. In fact, in verse 45, it says the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. This is the f- same phrase used in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. So friends, do you see what is happening here? Remember Acts 1.8? Right before Christ's ascension, he promised the Spirit would come. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Brothers and sisters, through the first ten chapters of Acts, we have watched the fulfillment of this promise unfold. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being declared to all people. Those declaring the message of Christ have been imprisoned, they've been beaten, they've been murdered. The church has faced distraction, discipline, and discouragement. And yet the gospel has just plowed through every obstacle and it has overcome every form of opposition. This should give us confidence and boldness in the task God has called us to. So let me draw this sermon to a close by offering three concluding applications. Application number one. I just alluded to this, but I want to say it again. This text reminds us that the Great Commission is not something we hope will work. It's not as if Jesus is waiting to see if the Great Commission takes. And if it doesn't, he'll throw out a plan B and see how that goes. No, the Great Commission will be accomplished. It cannot be thwarted. There is no opposition on earth that can stop the spread of the gospel. As I said already, we see this unfolding in Acts. And we know where all of this is headed. Revelation chapter 7 reveals a breathtaking heavenly scene. And we look forward to this in faith. After this I looked. And behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters. That will happen. And God will do this work of gathering the nations to himself. He will do this work through faithful local churches like Redeemer Bible Church. He will do it through good gospel work of of committed missions organizations like, like Training Leaders International. And we all get to be part of this. This is one of the reasons I hope all of you come to see Jesus in Athens. I want you to see the book of Acts happening all over again right now. At this very moment, 
At this very moment, God is sovereignly gathering his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I don't know about you, but that's something I want to be part of. Application number two. From the very earliest stages of the church, hospitality was both a powerful evangelistic strategy and a powerful evidence of the gospel's reconciling work. Uh, Look back at the beginning of verse 23. There is a phrase that is easy to miss. So he invited them in to be his guests. Listen to what Tony Marita writes about this. This hospitality offer may not seem like a big deal to us, but for Peter and the other Jewish Christians, it signaled a huge gospel moment. The thinking of Peter and the others is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. This is evidence that they were discarding the false notion that the gospel was for Jews alone. Now, right after this, when Peter arrives in Caesarea, he's invited into Cornelius' home where he has gathered his friends and family to hear the gospel. Friends, gospel barriers are crumbling and the gospel is advancing in living rooms. So let me suggest a proven evangelistic strategy. It's been around for thousands of years. Invite your neighbors into your home. Get to know them. Laugh with them. Weep with them. Pray for them. And in your hospitality, don't discriminate. Don't discriminate. In fact, this leads us to the final application this morning. Application number three. If you think Acts chapter 10 is primarily about the conversion of Cornelius, you would be wrong. John Stott rightly claims that the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. You see, friends, in order for the mission of Jesus to advance, the Spirit had to do a profound work in the heart of Peter. Overcoming what Stott calls his deep-seated racial intolerance. And don't miss what fueled Peter's racial intolerance. It was a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what he believed the scriptures taught. Brothers and sisters, this this has far too often been the case. From the earliest days of the church and up until this present day, we can easily point to all sorts of ways in which professing Christians have justified discrimination and racism by misapplying Scripture. So, let me be clear this morning. If you ever hear, if you ever hear someone use Scripture to support the idea that God's attitude toward people is determined by any external criteria like 
appearance or race or nationality or class, if you ever experience this, you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that what you are hearing is a wicked perversion of God's word. In the words of Peter, after the Spirit has opened his eyes to see his racial intolerance and his misapplication of Scripture, what does he say? Verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Brothers and sisters, if the gospel is going to advance through this church, then we need to see our world with the eyes of Jesus. We need to see our neighbors with the eyes of Jesus. We need to see the outcast, the refugee, the marginalized, and the oppressed with the eyes of Jesus. We need to behold with fresh eyes the power of Christ. If we take what we've learned in chapter 9 and combine it with what we've seen this morning in chapter 10, here is, here's where we're left gazing. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus and his unrivaled power and his redemptive love for all people and his call to us to take this message to the end of the earth. I can't imagine anything that could motivate us more to engage in evangelism than to behold the power of the risen Christ. In just the last two chapters of Acts, we have seen that Jesus alone has power over disobedience, disease, death, and now discrimination. So brothers and sisters, let's take the gospel to all people in the power of the risen Christ. Let's pray.